And we're live. All right. Sure? Hey, yeah, I'm sure. It says so on the top right. It says L-I-V-E live. Oh, you can read. Hooked on Phonics worked for me. You know, they should sponsor us. I make that joke that all the time. That did not work for me, for the record. Are they even still around? I'm not sure. I don't know. I know. I've, I've been a literacy teacher for a number of years, and like we use things that are related, but not that exact program. You know what else we need to bring back? Uh, Reading Rainbow. That was awesome. Yes. The Burton guy with the without the, the glasses. He didn't quite look the same, though. Without the well, Star, I mean, Star Trek. Bar Burton reads now, so... Oh, that's right. He's got that podcast. We should see if we get him on the show. But we're not here to talk about him. We're here to talk about you. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, and Doc is mocking me as she does, but we've got Mike Stumbos. I had to sound that out, so I make sure yeah. I got it right. And we're just going to call him Mike from here on out, because I probably will mess it up the second time. But uh, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers? Yeah. Hi, I'm Mike Jack Stumbos. Um, I frequently call myself a believably normal school teacher um, <laughs> who is also a science fiction author. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm here with a science fiction series in particular, um, book one of this fine. And also recently back from the other coast, the other coast being Los Angeles uh, and the Writers of the Future Awards. So looking forward to being on here and chatting with y'all. All right. So, I know some of those people. They're fun people. <laughs> yep. Indeed. So the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first found them. So he actually came to us recommended through another guest. Mm -hmm. um, but Doc, you know everybody who knows everybody. So how did you first meet him? Bar at Liberty Con? Bar at Atlanta? He hasn't been to Liberty Con. Bar yeah. at Dragon Con? He hasn't been to Dragon Con. Doc, is this possible? There's people you don't know? <laughs> Yes, there are, but he already knows people I know. There we go. So, so he got like the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon going on. Not okay. even seven degrees. Like one one like degree. One degree. <laughs> you know, you know yeah. the teacher of the workshop that you had, Jody. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There you go. See. Fair. All right, there you go. The one degree of of Mike Stumbos. We call go. it that. All right. <laughs> uh, put that in the uh, on the Wikipedia when you get rich and famous, and you'll be like, Jr. said it. Um, so now, Doc, you get to ask your favorite question, and we get to see how long he gets to stay on the show. Sure. He too loves pineapple. No. Um, Wait, do you? I do. Yeah, pineapple's oh, awesome. Dude. What the heck is wrong, Doc? Why do you keep bringing me these perverted guests who put pineapple on sacred pizza? Oh, okay. So I, I can say I like the, I like the salty and sweet, but I don't. I, I mean, I love ham and pineapple together. I don't see a need to put them on a pizza, though. Okay. Like, so I'm one of those weirdos. Like I, He's I would rather the baby. I like it. Those, but yeah. Well, see, I don't really get the ham and the pineapple combination, but I'm not a big ham person unless it's country ham. No, I'll do ham and ham and uh, pineapple together, like with the country ham place. and bacon. <laughs> Only reasons for pigs. I mean, bacon bits are good too. A little bacon big. Yeah. I mean, I like other things with pork products, but yeah. those are the two by far. Anyway, they're gonna they're gonna start to think we have a food podcast instead of a sci-fi and, and fantasy podcast. Well, you're dieting, so Good bringing up food is particularly fun with you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Love you too, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> so, on to the the question that he actually meant, which is the religion question: Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? 
I'm not so much of an or. I've seen and loved all of them. I actually have uh, both Star Trek and Star Wars tattoos. So I'm nice. a yes and person. Um, I mean, like when I go to when I go to cons, I will frequently wear the they they call it like the nerdy prayer shawl. I will wear the scarf draped with a com badge because I can't just go around flashing my chest all the time, um, and I have to have some kind of a pin to to be able to show that. So yeah, nice. I mean, yes and I'm very polytheistic when that's concerned. Well, so are there any others you would add to the list? Ooh, probably um, Battlestar Galactica is one that I I really Good love. Um, it's it's not going to be a for everyone, but I I, I seriously got wait 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 Galactica. which Battlestar Galactica? Both. I was actually introduced to the to the reboot before the original, and then I went Me back too. and watched the original, and I'm still okay. Lost, so. I'm going to have a controversial opinion here. People, prepare to gasp in horror and send hate mail to Doc. I actually liked the reboot better because Starbuck made a better character with the backstory they gave her in the reboot with the love interest and she sent the boy off to die because she signed for him because of who he was. And so she was trying to help him out with his family and that caused his death. It explained all the character angst. It made sense. It wrapped up that tie instead of just a bromance for no other reason. Like I liked that change better. I think it works. Yeah. I mean, otherwise you just have face from a team and yeah. You no, know, from an adult <laughs> perspective, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> From a, you I grew an adult. up with the original, <laughs> and I have it in a Cylon head with the original packaging. Yep. You are tolerable and allowed to exist still. I like the original too. Don't get me wrong, and I, I like campy sci-fi. The original had female fighter pilots. The, well, the, 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 the remake. Too. Yeah, no, but the, but this was. That's nothing new in this day and age. In that day and age, when it came about, it was female fighter pilots, and one of them was even a single mom. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. Did you watch the new Caprica uh, reboot that only sadly got one season because Fox is where all shows go to die? Yes. Uh, um. I mean, that is one that I had to find on DVD. So I think that I have seen through the finale of the one season by the time it got nixed. And if I haven't, I have no idea if there are episodes that I'm missing. So... That's one that I should probably dig a little more thoroughly, but it I have seen good. it. It was good. It was, it had some pretty cool stuff and some stuff that made me go, huh, in a not great way, but I was like, maybe they'll fix it in the second season. If you go, there's a website, <laughs> if you go to it, epguides.com, okay. and you can go in and it'll break things down. It'll even tell you where to find things, but okay. like, like what network or streaming service it's on, but it will break things down and it'll be like, this season has these episodes in it, not just the numbers, but the episode titles and the yeah. air dates. So if you're ever lost on something like that, it's a great resource. So did you get into the Whovian stuff? Um, I have yeah. seen I've seen chunks of Doctor Who. I can't say that I'm a huge Whoist, um, but I've seen chunks of it. I I, I liked a lot of the episodes that I saw with Tennant, um, and I don't think I finished all of the Matt Smith. I'm pretty. Sure, I'm very sure I haven't seen all of the Matt Smith. Doc doesn't normally let me talk about this because I don't think the Daleks are scary. <laughs> whenever, whenever anybody talks about Daleks, I just I want to yell more loudly than I, I should on a camera, like you know the exterminate <laughs> line or anything else that comes into that. Exactly. That, uh, but they're trash cans with plungers. I mean, come on. Even for their time, they were crap. They are. Yeah. What you eat is trash can. It's okay. Yeah, that's why I'm on the diet because I got to fix that. <laughs> No, I don't eat the plunger. No, you don't eat the plunger. Okay, Hard I'm learning to cook. You hush. It's just not quite <laughs> edible yet, but we'll get there. That's one way to diet. So, moving on because we are polytheistic. 
Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or The Wheel of Time? Um, out of those three, I have to go hard into Lord of the Rings. Uh, and the fantasy that I grew up on would be, you know, if we're going like weird technicalities, we could say Star Wars or like portal fantasies. So things of the, the like the C.S. Lewis variety or anything that's part of like the Neverland lore or Alice in Wonderland lore. Like, so yeah, so Lord of the Rings and portal fantasies was what I grew up with. Um, and I have not been a huge Game of Thrones uh, or um, the other one, uh, Wheel of Time. They so are we... tomes of books. Yeah. When you say portal fantasy, did you watch like the show Sliders? I don't know how old you are, but like, I've seen was... some sliders, yeah. yeah. I've seen some sliders, yeah, and I've seen some quantum leap, which feels more like portal science fiction, but still yeah. similar yeah. things. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's one that I probably should see more of. It's but... it was fun and it was yeah. it was a an interesting twist on what was out there. Quantum leap was interesting. Mm-hmm. Some of the the like the like the technicalities, like how does that exactly work when he's switching genders on the bodies because he sees himself, and they, it just started blowing my mind when I tried to like reason out how that would work. So yeah. I just hit the I believe button and we moved on. Sure. Sometimes that's what you have to do, Jr. Particularly yeah. with you and anything involving science. So, what was your first <laughs> love? Sci-fi or fantasy? It's going to be that wedge in the middle. It's going to be the the Star Wars with the space fantasy. Um, so yeah, I I watched the I watched the Star Wars original trilogy when I was young enough that I don't have like very specific memories of where I was, but I remember the wow factor, and I remember trying to find any manner of action figures that I could to try to like play out whatever was going on in those scenes and then build it from there. Um, in terms of like really digging into the genre in a way that I was I was going to you know, start to analyze and then led to the reading of it, that would be uh, Star Trek TNG. Um, so I am, I'm about the age of the start of Star Trek TNG. And, and so that was one that I, I did get to grow up with a little bit and then watch reruns over and over and over again. And yeah, and have that pull. That's the guy from Reading Rainbow and also he's short of the forge. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. I was that kid in school and I thought it was, I'm like, we're not watching Star Trek. What? <laughs> so. I mean, Reading Rainbow is really just, you know, on the holodeck and and Jordy's. I can totally see that being a thing. It's in a book. (laughs) I can still see the Reading Rainbow icon in my head. Yes, but please don't sing it. Yeah, mostly because I don't want the copyright strike. (laughs) So we'll move on. No, it's because I've heard you sing. Um, (laughs) That too. So you kind of already gave us what your uh, first memory is. Was it Star Wars or was it something else? No, Star Wars was the first one, yeah. So then, JR, it's your turn. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm going. oh okay. Should I steal your I was, question? Or should I let you talk? No, I was just that? muting it because the dog was barking. So when you said that your first memory was watching, the, <laughs> see, uh, you said your first memory was watching the, the 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 TV. Do you have any like books or games that came before that in your mind? Not before that. Um, no, we're, we're talking like three and a half years old, seeing some chunk of of I think. I think A New Hope was the first one that I was exposed to. And then afterwards, it was, it was all uphill from there. Um, yeah. Okay. Fair, fair. Yeah. Got, so got what games and books and stuff afterwards. Fair, fair. I just, most people, when you ask them, they do because of the nature of the podcast, they go directly to books. So I like mm-hmm. to remind them that there are other options that count because we try to be more umbrella. So that's why we yeah. interview game We're designers. We're inclusive. And- that was the word we were going for, sure. Uh, yes. So, what is it about the the wide uh, umbrella that is speculative fiction that you you love? 
I mean, there are going to be a lot of things. Uh, the the escapist one is just a ton of fun to be able to play in whatever kind of imaginative playgrounds that you wouldn't be able to hit in the real world. Um, and I, I'm somebody who likes that investigation exploration process. And so if I can get like the investigation that you would put into a logic puzzle, but in a medium of something with space and aliens and so on and so forth, and we're going to try to figure out why this phenomenon is doing what it's doing, then I'm into it. So yeah, so the 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 Star Trek, um, particularly TNG episode format, where it's like we're going to see something cool and bizarre that we don't understand and then investigate the crap out of it until we get it and are able to survive it. Um, that's That's kind of ideal for me. Yeah. So I grew up in a military town. So every time that would come on and I'd want to watch it, my my stepdad was military. And he'd be screaming at the TV that the captain and the first officer would never leave the ship like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, what do you think we have incense for? Yep. So I, I grew up with that in the background every time I tried to watch it. But so did, you mentioned you like the the logic puzzle angle of it. So is that yeah. did you ever try to figure out the three dimensional sort of tiered chess or whatever they were playing? I've, um, so I've been exposed to I've been exposed to a couple of versions of 3D chess. Um, I've also played the there was one with domes. Um, mm -hmm. It's called Terrace. It's a yeah. It's 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 a like a staircase board with domes of different sizes that are supposed to jump and capture each other. And it's one of those games that was you know made popular by TNG and went on the Mensa list and so on and so forth. And that was one that I played a lot as a kid. I like was introduced to it in like third grade. I'm like, this is amazing. This is the better version of checkers. Uh, <laughs> so yes. I can't only... say much. I thought checkers was boring. I, I played but, chess from a young age. So I never played chess. I played cathedral much more fun. I don't know that one. But we, maybe we'll have a, an episode where we do nothing but talk board games and we'll have you back and you can talk about your nerd board games because well, yeah, I'm totally yeah. down to learn more. Yeah, um, nerd board games. Uh, I, I like the idea that some of these um, sci-fi and fantasy properties created their own games that became yeah. real. Uh, just like so many. And this, I'll give this to Star Trek. And I, prefer, I tend not to believe in Utopian or Grimdark too much. It just I, mm -hmm. I tend to be more in the middle gray area kind of guy. Yeah. But uh, there are some inventions that came out of Star Trek just because Uber fans are like, huh, I like this. I'm a yeah. science person. I wonder if I can figure it out. Uh, <laughs> and they did for some yeah. of it. Um, so if there was any invention from Star Trek before we move on that you would want that isn't doesn't exist yet, but you want, what's it going to be? Oh, man. That, there, there's so many of those things. Because um, <laughs> I'm totally going for the holodeck, just because, I mean, Holodeck's you know, think about the cool things you could do. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to cheat too much, but basically the ships as is that have de facto gravity where when anything else goes wrong, like they can, life support can be failing and the de facto gravity stays. Um, so to have a ship that can travel to wherever and you can just kind of hang out in normal gravity... Um, without having to deal with any kind of time dilation equations. Like, that just sounds brilliant. Um, I would love that. And, yeah, so might be a cheat, but I'm just going to say the ship. Okay. Uh, we'll get there before Holodeck. So, and if you want to know how I would misuse the Holodeck, watch the first episode of, what's that remake they did? It was the Star Trek, not Star Trek, that, uh, oh, the comedy version of it. The Orville? The Orville. Like, yeah, that opening scene where he's just fighting game characters. He's, like, living out his... his wild fantasy kind of thing no. like, that'd totally be me i totally use it that way it's not that bad of a misuse yeah it's not <laughs> that bad of a misuse well it's a family friendly show that. so we're gonna we're gonna leave it at that 
yeah. but so how did your love of speculative fiction before doc spills stuff and it, you know we lose the rating how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition into you writing stories in that space um i think that it the, it was a step from star trek tng to my uncle really loving twilight zone and wanting to introduce me to that and like oh. the uh, across the street neighbors liking really classic sci-fi and wanted to introduce me to, uh, to Forbidden Planet. And then with those things, having these like these more literary sci-fi approaches, and I'm like, oh, I can write these stories that are these you know quick clips of somebody sees something they don't understand, and they need to have some point of wow, they need to have some point of realization about what this means for the rest of the world, and they need to make some choice at the end. And, and it was just like, it was the basic template for sci-fi short fiction. And as it turned out, I really enjoyed it. So I started trying to write my own like sci-fi short stories uh, when I was like 10 or 11. Um, and this was, you know, I was also heavily involved in theater and I had started getting into uh, the beginning of role-playing games as well. So all of it was kind of this, this mishmash of like, I can tell these stories and bring these things together. And by that point, my, my brothers and cousins weren't as into playing with action figures with me because they told me that I spent too much time on building the storyline stakes and dialogue and, and, it wasn't just, you know, action figures shooting each other. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah, not sure I, I did, your question. I, I did that with my, uh, with my little G.I. Joe figures when I was little. I remember vividly when we were moving from Great Lakes that I was like trying to run out of the car because I realized I hadn't dug up all of them from the graveyard that was in the backyard and we were leaving and I wanted them back yep. because it was part of the storyline. You know, I was on season two or yeah. however, you know, like in my head. So I had a graveyard and uh, some of them are still mother. there. Yeah. She was like, you were not traveling from, you know, Great Lakes to Virginia in my car covered in <laughs> filth. No, get back in. If you wanted them, you should have left them in the packaging and not put them in the ground. Yep. And of course my stepdad had, had no, uh, no sympathy. He's like plastic came from dinosaurs, ashes, to ashes, dust to dust. We're leaving kids. So no he had no sympathy. your mom likes me better. It's true. But uh, so many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So are there any specific formidable moments that you think shape the kind of stories you tell? I, I don't think specifically. Um, there's going to be there's going to be a little bit of that mishmash overlap of what you will. Um, I, I think that some of the me being that puzzle solving like want to observe and investigate and experiment whenever i could kid is going to filter into that as is i mean i i have this theory this is also me as a teacher um i have this theory that all kids are field biologists until somebody talks them out of it right like at any given time any little kid is going to be like oh here's a thing i want to touch it i want to see how it works i want to poke it oh it stung me well that sucks um, and until somebody tells them not to, then I, I think that all little kids are basically field biologists and that's where it starts from. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I grew up in a giant family. I have 48 first cousins. This oh, is not God. exaggeration. I thought so, my family was huge. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm number, I'm number two of four boys. We're all within seven years. And then I have 48 first cousins, most of whom are, are pretty close in age to me. Um, so big oh families God. on both mom and dad's I guess side. Statistically, you're bound to like one of them. Right. Yeah, several. Um, and, Sorry, and so, that sounded um, horrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, now you know what your parents did with their spare time and your aunts and uncles. And and statistically, some of them are bound to like me, which is, you know, we're, we're still. <laughs> I have five cousins. I talked to zero of them. So. Yeah. 
Well, by now, a couple of my early readers are are a couple of the cousins that, you know, we used to geek out about Star Wars cards, you know, 20 years ago or so. And that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So transferring to some fandom stuff. As my mind is boggled at how the concept of having 48 cousins. I can't oh. imagine a potluck and what that looks like for the poor people making the food for them. And you you can't imagine what it looks like. It looks like a unit potluck. In yes, the it's a mess hall. It's a, it's yeah. a military mess hall. Okay. Yeah, so on the, on the own, Greek side, like, like on the Greek side, whenever we would get together for these holidays, like we would have somewhere between 60 and 100 people like in a household plus backyard and people would think that I was exaggerating at school. I'm like, like no, really? We, we like, we, we ran the count because like we're, we're a bunch of math people and, and, you know, Greeks who make way too much food. And every time when all the massive amounts of food came out, one of my uncles would actually say, Oh, we're going to starve every time he would say, we're going to starve. <laughs> and that was just the running joke in the family because it was like just way more than anyone could possibly eat in a few weeks. And yeah. I'm picturing one of the little kids sitting there on this on the door, the little math clicker, like clicking everybody as they walk in. Like I lost count. We got to start again. Everybody leave as possible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh. So yeah, I go to cons so I can pretend to know that many people. Uh, so <laughs> going on to cons and cosplay and fandom. Mm-hmm. Have you had any cool cosplays or fan art of any of your characters yet? Uh, not yet. Um, so I have had uh, an illustration commissioned for the story that was in the Writers of the Future, Volume Thirty Eight. So that was awesome, um, yes. and that has been up and posted. And you know, it's a it's a little kid with a, a tentacle alien coming out of her backpack. That's her symbiote companion. Um, so awesome things. I've heard of this one. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Oh, I know actually, some of the Writers of the Future people, and on. I got told how cute it was. <laughs> I, I really should have just thought about this in advance. Like I've got it like right behind me. So yeah. <laughs> anyway. So um, when you say symbiote, is it like actively like attached to her or is it just in a backpack? It's attached to her spine. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There are good reasons why, and it's a fun story. Um, but in terms of the the space opera series, like the first book for that one launched in December of 2021, so it's still in very early days. I have not had any cosplays or fan art from that, although that would be awesome to see. And and yeah, if anyone feels like uh, drawing out some of the different aliens, and or if you want to see some of the original concept art that I did, which is probably not as good as some of the illustrators out there would be able to do, um, and use that as inspiration, they can totally draw those things up and send it to me. Um, and or if you're on my newsletter, send it to me via newsletter. That would be excellent. Um, so we will link to all of that in the show notes so you can sign up for his newsletter and do all the things. And then hopefully if other people send it, maybe he'll get permission and he can share it with you as well. Yeah. So has anyone ever asked for your autograph yet? Yes. And yep. What was that like? Uh, it's been pretty cool. So like the, the first time that I, I signed my autograph for something, um, it was like, in costume at the end of a musical theater production, all of us lined up to sign people's programs. I was 11. So like my, my first like my first paid musical theater role, I was 11. Um, I had no idea what to expect other than there's a pen in my hand and I'm still in costume and semi in character. And that was just cool. So at a certain point doing, you know, a number of, of plays as an actor and then as an adult, as a, a writer and then director, uh, 
signing things was just cool and it was fun. And so then when I started having my, my uh, fiction published, so sci-fi and fantasy stories published in anthologies and having people ask me to sign, that was cool. Um, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't a, a new crazy thing that was like mind blown because I think I'd already, I'd already been through that. Um, but it's been very fun having like, having people come up to me who have already purchased the book, like outside of me asking me to sign it. And I think one of the so, most fun ones with that was like, um, it was like a 13 year old kid um, who got referred through some friend of a coworker of a spouse of a something and bought the first book in the series. And, and then at, at some point I got, you know, I met him and he asked if I could sign the book for him. I'm like, that is just cool. And then that's. So when you signed the first one at this, um, at this musical theater play, did you sign as you as Mike or did you sign as whatever the character's name was? Oh yeah. I, I signed as me. I mean, like, cool. you know, Whatever the, the version of 11-year-old uh, cursive is, writing Mike. Yeah. Okay. At least you All had right. a short name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I don't mean, know. Mostly it was an M and then a squiggle. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. So, um, so this is where we talk about everything you have written, Mike. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? Yeah. So in the specfic world, sci-fi fantasy... Um, the big novels are going to be the three that are out for this fine crew. So Signal Out of Space, Rupture in Time, and Seed in the Sky. Um, and then otherwise, I've written a number of short stories that have been published in various collections. The biggest one of that is going to be Rise of the Future, Volume 38. Um, and that one's so much fun to be part of. Uh, and the first one that I was published in that I, I love to call out, it was in a, a Dragons anthology. It's Dragon Riders anthology, 26 stories. And like the opener was Brandon Sanderson and the, the final story in the volume is Dave Farland. Um, it also has Todd McCaffrey, Jody Lynn Nye. And I'm like, this is very cool. So that was my first uh, sci-fi publication. Um, and that was a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so well, that's a good company to be in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you can do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so those all sound fascinating, but as you hinted at the beginning, we're here to talk about the Signal Out of Space, the first book mm -hmm. in this fine crew series. Uh, was it series or saga? I've seen it both ways when I Googled you on the internets. Is it a series oh, or I, saga? I think I've been calling it series, but if people are calling it a saga by now, that's cool. I'm going to keep calling it series, though. <laughs> series works. Yeah. I, I'm not sure that the difference, you know, for most people, I think they're synonymous. Obviously, yeah. there's, there's fine distinctions, but... Um, so where did you get the premise for this universe? How did you come up with the idea for the series? Uh, so I actually originally started trying to, to write a rule book for a universal space opera role playing system. Um, and that was where it all, that was where that all took off for me. Uh, because I'm, I'm not going to try to bash any role playing systems. I love it. I've been playing D20 for a long time and then some other systems as well. But a lot of the ones that are in the Star Trek, Star Wars, Star, whatever, um, they have a lot of focus on hit points and, and leveling and combat that's like, you know, slog fests of combat, which doesn't feel like the kind of space opera that, that I'm looking for. I want the kinds of things that are going to be very like conversation based episodes where people are doing that exploration and investigation. So I'm like, all right, how do you do this? Um, and so I ended up writing a rule book and trying to set up these archetypal species that we expect to see in space operas, including, you know, the big furry warrior species, take your Wookiee or Klingon, um, your hive mind insect species, which is usually going to be the villain and so on and so forth. So they started as archetypes. And, and I was just kind of like drumming around ideas that I thought were 
funny. And I ended up calling it this fine crew off of one line from Galaxy Quest. Because um, <laughs> there's a bit when, you know, when Tim Allen, like when old Tim Allen, drunk and, and watching himself on TV, is reciting his own lines. And, and the guy on TV, in a very melodramatic fashion, says, this fine ship and this fine crew. And the guy at home is like, yeah, this fine crew. I'm like, it's my series. Um, <laughs> I think that's great, though, because it really does um, signify that it, that's what it's about, is the crew. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, and Galaxy's Edge is such a underrated movie that is totally awesome, and I wish they had made a second. Never did, and at this point, I, I think yeah. most of the the actors were too old to go back to it. Think with, so. with with yeah. it making sense. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, so yeah. So Galaxy Quest and Star Trek Stargate, things with star in the title was 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 really where a lot of it came from, and I was looking for a way to do that universally to set up as a role playing system. And along the way, I had some ideas for a universe that I liked playing around with. And I'm like, oh, I can drum out an episode of this pretty quickly. And so I, I set myself up a summer project and typed out a novel and then really liked it. Um, and and then, then I was like, cool, I've got enough stuff that I can continue this into a longer series. And so I'm like, all right, if I write out three, then either I can find somebody to publish them or I can self-pub them. And I will have a trilogy of space opera that's, you know, got some quirky referential funny stuff and and some things that are really just digging into the kinds of episodes that i would like to to read and watch um yeah so it, there's a lot of it that's self-indulgent <laughs> somewhere along the way i think you kind of i mean at, at a certain point in time every author starts writing the book that they they wanted to read and couldn't yeah. find mm -hmm. i mean that's that's a story that we get almost uh every time we do an interview uh and and yeah. that's the great thing about the the digital age is it makes room for all of those stories yeah. So yeah. did you, what, when you looked at the RPGs for uh, for this, the space opera vibe, which ones did you try? There have been a lot over the years. Um, so I, yeah, so I, I tried, I tried a lot that were based in D20 systems to start and I've, uh, I've attempted a couple that used like the fate system. There was uh, sort of some skins from GURPS. So general universal role-playing system. Um, and then others whose names are just not in my head right now. There were a couple that were like more in the dark, gritty, um, like, I don't know. So human bio enhancement uh, meets neuromancer kind of stuff. And oh, I'm yeah. blanking on the names. Yeah. I have, <laughs> the ones... I, there's one when it comes out. I have a friend who's working on one called Subterraneals. You should mm -hmm. really check it out. Cool. You really like it because it's very, it's less combat driven. Mm-hmm. And more, and and then there's not a lot of dice. Most of the die rolls are either a d6 or a d10, and you're good. Cool. Yeah. So very straightforward math, because well, he was an English major, I think, at one point. <laughs> yeah, I mean that happens. Um, speaking as a, a reformed English major, so uh, did you ever try like Metamorphosis Alpha, which is like the quintessential first sci-fi RPG? I don't think I have. Um... It's possible that, that is I old, from it, but I don't. I don't think it, I have. it's very similar on the dice structure that uses the the D and D because I mean that's mm -hmm. what birthed it uh, when TSR put it out, and I played that with James, the guy that created James Ward. And I have to say, you got to roll for everything. What you want to pick up this gauntlet? Sure, roll to see if you can figure out how to wear a glove. Some of that's also DM style, yeah. too. So mm -hmm. fair. I, I'm still. I mean, I had a DM also who, when you um, you were like, well, actually, according to the rule book, he goes, oh look, roll again. 
did not know what you were rolling for, but he rolled and you rolled and you knew it could potentially go really bad. Mm -hmm. Yep. So there's another one that Doc was mentioning in the side chat. It's uh, the Magitech World by Chris Fox. He wrote uh, RPG for his books. Uh, and then he uh, he's obviously he's leased that the engine behind it out to other authors. But that was a very uh, sci-fi meets fantasy because there's like magic elements and, you know, you're hunting for like, you know, orbs essentially to give you powers. So it was a happy blend, but it did it a lot yeah. smoother and it was a lot less crunchy. So it, it's more story driven, which it sounds like that's what you like. Yeah. So that might be something to work out. And the books are pretty good, too. We've had him on. We should have him back on again. Uh, I really do like Chris Fox's books. Um, he's, yeah, he's we a, haven't had him on since I like devoured the series. And we'll see, that is the one problem. We interview all these guests, and we're like, "Oh, that book sounds good." No, I'm not going to buy. It. Oh, I bought another one. It happens. <laughs> yeah, Doc is the worst. She, oh, she I've just her given up. Bank. She's given up. <laughs> I've just given up. All right. Well, normally we were going to talk about the cover, but before we do that, we're going to pause for a second while we shamelessly shill for the man and we'll uh, take the commercial interview. We're going to make JR do a dance. Fun. We're going to dance off screen. The Terran Empire is dead. Long live the Empire. Commander Jared Mertz, the bastard son of the Emperor, and his half-sister, Princess Kelsey, barely speak to one another. To their dismay, their father seizes an opportunity to change that and sends them on a dangerous quest to explore the fallen empire. Separated from home by an impassable gulf and struggling to redefine their relationship, they find themselves thrust into a vicious war. Unless they work together to stop the empire's deadly legacy, billions face a horrific fate. Empire of Bones, written by Terry Mixon, now available at Amazon.com. All right, so uh, Doc and I both love uh, Veronica Jaguar's uh, narration, and I'm I'm a total Terry Mixon fanboy, so of course I had to use that one. The you only flaw in the now? series is that you can only get it through Amazon. <laughs> yeah, we're we're working on him with that. Um, and then we have a little bit. Doc and I have a little bit of a disagreement about who the main character is. And the author will tell you that the uh, doc is right, but but I know I'm right, and the author is just wrong. So, okay, that's know, not how that story. works. Sure, it is. I took it. There's a theory, and I, I learned in English lit that once the author releases no, for a while, it no, belongs to the fan. No, and as a fan, I say so. It is. Don't you? That is such a rude and demeaning theory. <laughs> I'm just going to say that is almost like the literary equivalent of not understanding what the word no means. I mean, no. you know, sometimes the author just, it was intrinsic in their soul and they didn't know it and they had to let it out. She said no, but she really meant maybe. No, she said no. Well, I mean, it's not, anyway, we'll move on because that could get us in a lot of trouble. We're just going to take this guy. So before we dig into talking about the book, let's take a second to show this sexy, sexy cover. Uh, and what's the story behind this art? How did it come up? Because I, I really like that rover looking um, thing that went on there. It reminds me of the thing from Ad Astra, if you've watched nice. that movie. Yeah, yeah I, I can see that. Let me zoom in for you, dear listener, if you're watching so you can see all the fine detail. Yeah, and I like you got a little bit of the halo effect from the reflection, mm -hmm. and you can even see kicking up the dirt. It has a few sides. The text, I really like the way they did the um, the font for this. Mm -hmm. And then if you zoom really in, like to the space, you can sort of see the background bleeding in. Yep. 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I really like this cover. Yeah, I, I was super happy with it. And um, and the trilogy, they all have very similar covers. It's all the same, it's all the same cover artist who's doing the digital rendering. Um, and in all three cases, I got to do the initial sketch for it. Uh, so yeah, so I've I've done the I've done the sketches for all of them, and each sketch of the front cover of uh, this fine crew book involves something terrible that is either just about to happen or has just happened to some vehicle um, in some space location and has a has a halo with a lens flare. Um, this is this is just something that's going to be common throughout the series. And so all those things were pre-planned. And, uh, and in this case, uh, the cover art is of the opening scene of the book. So we're going to start right here with... Um, with basically extreme, uh, basically the version of snowmobiling on Mars, um, and and that was that was kind of where that that scene came from. Somebody had asked me about like that opening scene with the like let, let's be daredevilish on ice moguls on Mars, and where did I get that? And I was like, Northern Michigan giant family, and my dad who has all kinds of daredevil stories from before he decided to settle down and have kids, um, but. <laughs> But the snow feeling aspect. And was, then he had a lot of them yeah, because yep. he liked adrenaline. There we go. Yep. <laughs> Parenting is an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> so how many uh like just for you know looking at the picture, because I like I like it. So like yeah. what's the uh the crew specs for this this vessel? Is it like a two-man job? Is it like what's what's the size for this uh vehicle? Um so you can fit four people uh seated in the forward compartment. Um, there is a middle-ish area where you can have another two comfortably and more than two uncomfortably, and then a back section where you can uh, put a couple people if they were laying down. Um, so, yeah, or for quick entry or exit purposes. So they're fairly large. These are not uh, these are not small vehicles. Um, these are meant to be, you know, uh, high-speed rovers. They call them RTVs, red terrain vehicles. Um, and in this case, it is on the surface of Mars um, and going in like that that ridge around the uh, sort of the craters uh, for Olympus Mons. Um, and it was just like, yeah, it was one of those things that it took some amount of study and some amount of like looking at the kinds of things that they that other people researched for me um, when talking about how to engineer the the six wheeled vehicles and like mass effect or something i i don't actually remember where it came from originally but i was like it's like yeah that sounds fun um but as long as crazy. as long as comfort isn't an option or as it isn't a consideration i happen to know you can stack a lot of people uh when i was as a in college i i managed to fit 27 people in my kia sophia um until the cop pulled us over and gave me a ticket apparently that's against the law who knew there are a few police officers giving tickets on this part of mars but um there That's is a the factor if you have, if you cram too many bodies in there that are all trying to breathe the same oxygen then uh, then eventually some tolerances will give out um so. this is true this is true so it was probably not our most brilliant idea and my, my kia was never the same again but i got rid of it so it's all good somebody yeah. else's problem and doc you get to ask the next question before i reveal too much and the insurance yes i will uh, save all of us from you <laughs> so can you give us the 30 second elevator pitch for your novel uh, yeah, the bit that I've been telling people is if they like Star Trek and like the idea of the Academy, but want more stuff to go wrong, then this is the kind of series that you're going to want to pick up. So you're going to get more interaction from the different alien POVs who are all trying to solve a mystery in the Academy and prevent the kind of 
let's say, sabotage efforts that would destroy a budding alliance before it manages to get off the ground. Sabotage is always good. Sabotage so did is. you actually did you ever show how it happened, or did you just sort of say it in the background? Um, I show pieces of how it happened, and that's that's a that's a good question. It's a hard one to answer directly without going into spoilers. Um, we do not like spoilers. So, so it's more that the characters figure out how it happened and are able to put the pieces together after the fact. I'll go with that. So. Okay. So real quick, and then I'll let Doc go on. So when you said there was sabotage, did you start with the idea of sabotage and go from there? Or did you start with how they sabotaged it and build from there? Which one came first for you? I started with the why. I started with why somebody would be doing things in the background that would be against the assumed main efforts of the uh, the Interstellar Initiative and its academy um, and figured out what kinds of things might get crossed along the way in order to create actual direct sabotage things and inadvertent it's a unhappy accident of people who are doing things that were not scheduled kinds of sabotage okay yeah i, like so I started it. with the why so how heavily into the mystery part did you lean i i mean i really like the structure of of the mystery it's it is it is a space opera through and through in terms of like setting and genre elements but the structure of it is a mystery like these characters are put into an environment that they're not very familiar with and they're learning things as they go and also learning about each other and trying to figure out who the heck they can trust and who they cannot trust, who is competition, who is going to cooperate with them. Um, and along the way, they are picking apart these threads of mystery and finding things that initially they don't even know whether or not these are not okay things to find. Um, at one point, a character happens to run into a cadaver and does not know whether or not this cadaver is here for, for research and training purposes. Um, Interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's I'm just trying to imagine a scenario where you stumble onto a cadaver where it's so much, and you, I, actually, I can think of a couple scenarios. There are cadaver like, farms where they like study body decomp and stuff. Right. Well, so in this case, they're, yeah, it's it's from the point of view of four cadets in this academy. One is human. Three are very different alien species, um, and they have a lot of they have a lot of culture clash just by default, and a lot of expectations of what they should do or should not do. That is uh, <laughs> that makes it difficult for them to work together. Um, and so, when one of the alien personalities happens to run into a cadaver and then find out that, oh yes, some cadets who are in the the medical and biological focus are studying dead bodies, why that makes sense. I need to write that so, off. I, I have so many questions, but like, is sure. each is each book going to be a year? Then no, I okay. yeah, I did not end up doing that. Um, well, that's yeah. like the tempting thing it's, with the academy thing, books yeah. to do. It's the thing that a lot of people do there. Um, so no, the the first three books, between the three of them, span close to a year. Okay. Um, the first one is actually over a pretty short chunk of time. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of direct urgency to what's going on in the first book, and then the second book you skip ahead a little bit and you get a more, uh, you get another urgent crisis that they have to deal with, and then skip ahead. 
few months, and then another urgent crisis that they have to deal with. Okay. So did you did you read the Heinlein juveniles about the space academies? Like he had Space Cadet and have spacesuit will travel. Yeah. Yep. Was that an influence for you? I think so. Yeah. Some of them, some of them probably in a very subconscious way, but uh, but yeah, I would say so. Um, so yeah. what tropes do you think you really hit on with um, the signal out of space? Yeah, there were a lot of fun ones there. Um, so the signal, out like space, the, the signal out of space, the title is, is pulled from the color out of space. Um, and, and the, the halo and lens flare has to do with uh, a particular phenomenon that is a thread that carries through, um, the first three books and has to do with everything that they're trying to approach. So dealing with something that would usually be cosmic horror with a sense of wonder and curiosity. I'm not sure if that's a trope or a trope inverted, but that was a ton of fun for me. Um, there's a lot of like the, you know, okay, we can't do this alone, but we can do it as a team. Uh, the, I would have gotten away with it too, if it weren't for you meddling cadets, uh, is, is one that I, I thought was freaking hilarious how it showed up. And then one that, that a couple of characters comment on is that um, bureaucracy is universe constant. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so those are did some you, that I think I play with very well. Did you read AC Crispin's um, Starbridge series? I have. I'll write it down. You should definitely check it out because you have some of some of the same themes, like international in, or interspecies school thing going on. And I think um, it's so, a shame nobody's done more with that kind of thing. Yeah. So I talked to a friend of mine who also writes, um, you know, the bureaucracy angle in his stories. Uh, Josh Hayes, I don't know if you know him. He wrote a series of Aethon books. So I've had both the publisher and Josh on. And we got into that disagreement about whether you would actually have real paper in paperwork in the future. And Josh and I said yes, because we've worked for the government. Mm -hmm. And the, the publisher said no, so they took it out. So where do you stand in this future bureaucracy? Is there actual paper or did it go full digital? So in this one, there is not because I, it, I'm, there totally could be on Earth and there totally could be for individual offices and so on and so forth. But in this particular future, no, there is not. Um, and that's mostly so that they can quickly relay messages between different stations, planets, um, you know, up and down from, from various ships. And pretty much all species have some version of a tablet that they are going to be using to read from, speak to interact with so they, they all have some kind of like digital interface and in terms of the academy and the interstellar initiative they have to try to get all the data in one place in a way that can be easily translated to the different languages i could still see birth certificates being done that way though sure maybe yeah. not like even routine or major personnel act, but like certain like huge things birth certificates death certificates yep so you mentioned that there are aliens there, and that's pretty much a premise if you read the description. So so it's not a secret that you have aliens. So do you plan on covering that first contact? Because some of the first contact stories in various universes can be a lot of fun to read. And I imagine given your sort of mix of humor, space opera, and mystery, that that might be a fun one to read. So do you plan yeah. on doing that at some point? Yeah, so I've actually, I've written a couple of them. Um, so one in particular that I wrote, it's, it's called A Roach by Any Other Name. Um, and and it's it's kind of what you assume. It's, it's a first contact with a, uh, let's see. Oh, sorry, are we having signal issues? All right. Um, no, well, JR, just on my end, they're, oh. um, they're putting in AT&T fiber in my neighborhood, which is causing some fun things at times. Yep. 
right. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. Let me know if you need me to change anything up. But yeah, so this story is about the human's first contact with uh, basically uplift cockroaches. Um, so oh, yes, so the hive mind insect species ends up being the, the human race's uh, closest allies in this universe, which is going to be a twist to the usual. Um, and in particular, these uplift cockroaches uh, basically say, hey, you all are hurting for help with your environment and starting to figure out this interstellar travel thing, but you're good at blowing stuff up. We're not good at blowing stuff up. Can you come help us blow things up? And then we'll help you out with exploring the universe. And humans are like, sure, we'll do that, of course. And then they, un, you know, unplanned, develop a warlike reputation among the uh, the uh, among shared space. Um, and this series gets to start after that. But yeah, but that initial story, A Roach by Any Other Name, um, I, I sent that to, of all things, LeVar Burton Reads. And so that was a list this last year. Um, so it was one of the top 12, which meant that Jordy frickin' LaForge actually read the story um, in consideration. I'm like, like that's just awesome. Uh, so, so yeah, so that is one that I have, uh, I've put out as an ebook, uh, you know, in like kind of newsletter and reader magnet things as a prequel. Um, but I've written a couple of the others and we'll see if those make their way into a collection at some point. Yeah. So did, because you are an English major, so were you reading like the Kafka, the Metamorphosis and all those stories, the, the sort of weird um, era of literature that, I mean, that sounds a little bit like your, your inspiration there, or am I just reading into it? I, I wouldn't say that one specifically, but yeah, I've, I've been a high school English teacher and I, I did the English major uh, and drama major, both literary focus, and then went on for master's in teaching. So I've, I've done the, the hard analysis side too. Um, and, and I don't know if that can totally 100% be shaken, even if I'm in like, yay, Star Trek mode. So, um, so you're recovering from, from your English major days. I can appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Okay. She's just rolling her eyes at me. I, I am. I so, yeah. so, so am. So JR loves for me to ask this question, but what subgenres do you see this fitting best into? Um, space opera, um, for one. And I'm not sure if it's officially a subgenre, but it should be like Academy science fiction. Um, I so think it is. Yeah, there's a lot of military science fiction. I don't think this fits as military science fiction. Um, in fact, there's a running joke that a lot of the uh, former military-ranked folks from Space Force who are trying to now run this academy keep trying to say, by the way, this is not a military operation. And they stress it so often that we have moments of, like, methinks the initiative doth protest too much. Um, yeah. <laughs> but academy science fiction, space opera, um, has little sprinklings of cosmic horror that are turned into fascination okay uh, so can you tell us a bit about the main character in this or is there four three or four main characters from what you were saying yeah so i would say that the main character is the human so at least for book one the human uh darren lidstrom um 18 year old kid who is basically set on flying one of those giant monstrosities out of the solar system and exploring other worlds, um, and who is sent to the Academy at the beginning of the Interstellar Initiative. He is the most main character, and he's one of those people who, like, on his own would probably not be super special or exciting. Like, he would be 
somebody who's eager to learn and who is a reasonably skilled pilot um, who is very willing to raise his hand, be the first volunteer, and potentially get into trouble doing so. Um, but on his own, he's not going to be groundbreakingly special. He is not a chosen one. He is not imbued with, like, with crazy powers. Uh, but he ends up trying to figure out how to work with the first um, mixed squad. So they're, they're putting together various groups of cadets and figuring out how different chunks of them will work together. And they do one that's like a full mix. So they have these four different species in there. And, uh, and a lot of the human cadets are some of them very overtly, some of them trying to be more subtle, are, are kind of protesting and hoping to work mostly with humans whose language they speak, whose culture they know, uh, with whom they will have the assumed most efficient interactions to be able to win and demonstrate that they're the best ones in the academy. Um, and, and this fellow, uh, Darren Lidstrom, is, is kind of popped into an experimental squad largely because of his initial interaction with one of these uplift cockroaches um and and he's like he's eager and curious enough to try to make it work and then between them as a group they end up being a very good group well that's good yeah so do you did you you know because you said there's a academy style mm -hmm. did you have like a military did you just use a blanket the u.s navy or like what did you use as your base model for your generic military structure? So the rank structure is primarily US Navy based. Um, I So yeah, this one, I, I, did a, I did a lot of research and looked at some of the different models that had been set up for, for like what space force might look like and what a cooperative space force between multiple countries might look like. Um, okay. And there are a lot of projections for this. And, and US Navy is also the easiest model to use because it is, it is one of the most known for things like Star Trek, and and I didn't want to um, confuse the heck out of readers who were expecting something that reminded them of, of Star Trek TNG. Um, so that is the main base of it. Uh, so the transnational space force that came before the Interstellar Initiative in the background of this series, um, and they used primarily that, that Navy rank structure uh, with also Marine designations for, for Space Marines. Um, so we kind of start from there, and then relabel things for civilian officers who are instructors of the academy and who are contact specialists and things like that. So yeah, there's a, there was a lot of research and discussion with that. Conveniently, I'm with a publisher that primarily does military science fiction and who is also, you know, primarily made up of, of people who are former military. Uh, so being able to answer those questions is really helpful. It is convenient. So yeah. you mentioned who the main characters were. Do you have any secondary characters that were pretty memorable to you, or did you just focus on, you know, that main ensemble? Yeah, I mean, so I, I haven't talked too much about the the other the other aliens in the ensemble, um, and and it is the main four that are going to be my favorites going into it. But there are some others that stand out to people, and I've had certain readers who know me at least tangentially who have contacted me to say, "You better not kill X character." Um, and so that's always nice to hear. Uh, but yeah, but the other characters in the squad, the Uplift Cockroach is uh, is one of people's favorites. They're, the two favorites are never the main character here. They're the they're the two of the other folks in the squad. One of them is the Uplift Cockroach named Paul Newman. Um, <laughs> and this species, because, you know, they they speak in, in, in mandible clicks, uh, <laughs> they will take a, a human name of somebody who is semi-famous in good standing and has theoretically been 
dead for about the last century um or more and and so yeah so the the main uh the main cockroach names himself paul newman um and and has a like embedded fascination with human society and always wants to be like more a part of it so he actually kind of gets to be like the lieutenant data of the group um just in terms of like his 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 love of all things human and wanting to like learn and incorporate bits of the culture. So he's a ton of fun. Um, and then the other character who stands out to a lot of readers is Cassiel. Cassiel is uh, the cold-blooded reptilian species, and she is um, she's creepy as all get out. Um, <laughs> like whenever whenever people talk about her voice, so, so other readers that have never heard me read it out loud, they will make some remark of how they expect her to sound, and frequently it, it's it's basically like the, uh, uh, I'm going to say the word wrong, but like the Skeksis in, uh, in Dark Crystal. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be just a universal assumption, even for people who have never heard me mention that. Um, and... And as far as Cassiel goes, she was declawed at a young age because she passed some genius aptitude test, and they decided that they were going to basically use her for, for representing her species as a science officer, and we're going to send you off to the initiative to be better than any of the other humans, and for that matter, better, better than the, any of the other lizards who are showing up here. Um, and so, yeah, so she's highly competitive, very creepy, smiles at all the inopportune times, um, and readers love her. So, so what was the significance of the declawing? It almost sounds like that might be a punishment. Oh yeah, um, this is there's one of those societies that I get to dig into bit by bit. Um, they have a habit of plugging people into roles that they're going to basically get stuck in for pretty much ever um, until proven failed at that role, and and those who are not going to be um, hunting or fighting or things that are going to use the claws, they are declawed young enough that um, that they can learn to use their fingers, hands, claws to be able to do more fine motor manipulation. Okay. Um, so yes, it does sound it does sound like a punishment, and it sounds like a creepy societal thing, and it is. Um, <laughs> Let's call it as it is, huh? It is like it's it's a creepy societal thing where it's like ah we have determined that you're this kind of genius we are going to mark you as an engineer and an ambassador for us and send you across the galaxy. And so that's that's the life and culture that she was born into and and she's like all right I'm going to beat everyone at that game including my own people and uh, she's just a lot of fun to write for and a lot of fun to read apparently. So are there any other characters that the fans loved that surprised you besides her? Yes. Um, I, I have two human characters that I, I have a lot of human characters that get some amount of attention, but I have two human characters who are sort of my uh, my stand-ins for me as cadets. One of them is is Lidstrom, and you know he's a he's a, a Swedish kid from Detroit. Um, that's for my mom's family, and then there's Yorgos, and Yorgos Stratis is a Greek kid from Portland, which is for my dad's side of the family, um, and. And I, I did not expect people to like Yorgos as much as they do. I was like, this this guy just makes sense to like to have here as a foil for a couple of the characters. And he also just feels like a real enough person that would be at this kind of academy. So he was very convenient in terms of like scene staging and also just felt real to me to write and read. Um, but a lot of people really liked him. Uh, yeah, so he's, you know, kind of hyper-focused, highly analytical, uh, 
The other cadets refer to him as a math head. I'm going to pronounce that again so it doesn't sound like meth head. They call him a math head. Um, but, but yeah, Yorgos has gotten a lot of love, and I didn't expect that. I mean, I've known a math head or two, and none of them were good at math. <laughs> but so what about the bad guys that they face is the is this a man versus in well man alien whatever uh character versus environment kind of thing or is there an obvious bad guy they have to face and obviously you know be careful to avoid spoilers yeah uh the direct bad guys are going to be all all kinds of spoilerish um so this is a cadets versus bureaucracy and cadets versus each other in terms of how it starts out and then behind the scenes, cadets versus evil mastermind who is trying to turn the alliance against itself. Or I guess I should say evil mastermind who is going to do a thing selfishly that if it goes wrong might destroy the academy and or turn the alliance against itself. Um, so the the villains in in this fine crew are, are much more antagonists than they are villains. There are some people who are in the I'm following these orders or I'm doing this for the greater good or I'm doing this for my species because it's more important that we get out ahead of the other species. Um, but so far, I have not gone too far down the ranks of villains who would go out of their way to kick a puppy or a space puppy. Um, yeah, I've mostly avoided those. That said, you're going to see some things in terms of like specious characters. So characters who are very set against or for one particular species. Um, and and that gets to rear its ugly head when it makes sense for characters to do so. Um, and so you're going to find some people who seem kind of villainous who aren't actually tied into the antagonist plot along those same lines. So, yeah. So there are a lot of forces for them to battle against, which makes it more fun. All right. So speaking of characters, this is uh, the Doc's second favorite set of questions, but... You, as authors, we tend to do a lot of horrible things to the people we write about. It makes the story more interesting. So <laughs> speaking of your characters, if you met them in a back alley and they knew who you were, Mike Jack Stumbo, Stumbo and I, it. I told you I couldn't say it twice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they knew that you were the guy that wrote their pain. How do you see that, that interaction faring out? Um, I actually think they'd be mostly okay with it. Uh, luckily, if it, so it's, if it's the core four, they would all be reasonably okay with it. They would all find ways to justify it. Um, Paul Newman would be completely optimistic about the whole thing. And there are terrible things that happen to Paul Newman. Um, but he's, he's yeah. <laughs> uh, Lidstrom would be too excited to meet his creator and want to know the meta rules of the universe. Um, <laughs> Neil would smile at me creepily and make remarks about how she could see potentially consuming some part of my body as, as, as repayment for what I've done to her. But that she would probably not need to test that theory. Um, and then the other one, Arch, uh, would stand there silently and stare at me with an underbite and growl occasionally. Um, I think so it'd like be okay. For my coffee. Yeah. Sure. I, I think it'd be fine. Okay. Well, that, <laughs> right, is, that is nice. They sound like some very understanding and enlightened characters. Because, <laughs> you know, enlightened, they didn't kill you right off the bat. Yeah. Um, so... Can you give us a sneak peek into how the sausage was made? Were there any cool scenes or ideas you cut from the final book that you want to use or have used in another way? Um, yeah, there's there are a lot of things that I pulled out that were character backstory or world backstory that I'd written into the first one when I cut for like pacing and flow. Um, and some of those I was able to drop into later scenes uh, in other books. Um, there are 
there are big chunks of Lidstrom's backstory that get to show up in book three um, for reasons of spoiler. Um, and and basically, while I was writing book one, there, there was a there's a point at which I was like, this definitely feels like the kind of thing that I would enjoy enough to keep writing it as a series. So I might as well have like another couple of documents available and outlines for books two and three and whatever. And I would just kind of take those things out and drop them in elsewhere. Um, so most of the things that I fold out, if it's a fun idea, like that same scene and wording might never show up again, but hopefully not totally lost. Um, yeah. So I'm all into recycling good things. Mm -hmm. So, and, um, and saving things for uh, later use, it counts. Definitely. Um, so for science fiction, the world can be as much a protagonist and character as anything, as your actual named characters. Can you give us a little bit more about what to expect in this universe? Like how far in the future are we talking? Are we talking, um, you know, do you have uh, uh, simulated gravity on your spaceships and things like that? Yes. So they do have simulated gravity. That's yeah, one of those things right. that I, I, I ripped that band-aid off really early and I have a character talk about how like the thing they're most excited about with the Interstellar Initiative is that they'll actually be able to walk around in their ships while jetting between systems. And then somebody else talks about the gravity that's only possible because of hybrid efforts between multiple species. So yes, I, I went into that early. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's about 100 years in the future. And... Um, a lot of a lot of the technology is brought about in cooperation with multiple species, so there are some things that I really get to do hand wavy. It's okay, an alien invented it, <laughs> um, and and in some cases, like characters will will question or be very confused by how or why something works because it doesn't seem like it should. And in some cases, I've actually written out a lot of stuff for why it works. I just, I'm never going to include it in the book. Um, but it's for me to know consistently. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and in, in terms of the the structure of the narrative for, you know, so books one, two, and three um, are centered around this idea of the first academy of the Interstellar Initiative and this wave of cadets that is trying to work together and basically serve as a template for everyone else. So they're they're cutting that trail. There's no pressure, right? Yeah. At all. Yep. Um, so you've mentioned so, books one, two, and three, but do you see it going beyond one, two, and three? Like, yeah. and do you see eventually they're going to graduate, right? Yeah. So is that yep. going to be like a four year when you're ready kind of thing or like what? <laughs> or, and, and will you continue it after they graduate? Yeah. And, and in terms of how long you continue it, it really has to do with like, if people keep reading it and if my publisher says that it's like viable enough that we should keep going. I know um, so you're greenlit for, which means people just need to keep buying. Yeah. So I, I've been, I've been greenlit for books four, five, and six. Nice. Um, so I'm writing book four. I'm pretty close to done with my initial draft of book four. Um, so expecting to, to have that one finished and, and sent off in a way that seems viable enough to me to start having the editing pass by the end of this month. Um, so, Will all of those still be in the Academy? They will not, no. Um, yeah, so we jump ahead in time a little bit. The The cadets are, they get to junior ensign status. Um, most of them do by the end of, uh, by the end of book three. By book four, they're all in some form of junior ensign or ensign. Um, 
and they are in some form of like we are continuing to train and develop these skills because we know that y'all aren't perfect yet but at the same time they're you know they're kind of learning as they go they're learning on the job because nobody else has done this before in exactly the same way to be able to, to kind of you know give them that wisdom before they send them out well eventually you either need to stay either decide to leave the classroom because you're not cut for it or you have right. to leave the classroom to go do it and learn more exactly. yep. yeah yeah completely agree yeah yeah and then so in books four five and six each of those is set up as a little bit more of a a standalone entry point um the first trilogy it does read as a trilogy and i've had a couple people read uh two or three out of order without having read one and it's not impossible it's just you're not going to get as much out of it um books four five and six i'm trying to set them up so that if somebody does see that that one is whatever amount of popular and just starts with that that it's doable so it's like um, there it's so that four will be its own entry point into yeah. your universe yep i like that because yeah. uh some of our favorite ones in space opera get to be really long mm -hmm. and they can be very intimidating for readers right. that want to pick up and read. Yep. So we know that every literary universe, or at least the good ones, have their own internally consistent rules of science and technology. Yeah. Uh, mentioned, um, yeah, whatever. Uh, you've <laughs> mentioned that you have uh, anti-gravity solving the issue of um you know, weightlessness in space, you've yeah. hand waved your way through FTL. What other sort of technology can we expect? Yeah. Um, so the so the FTL in particular, um, they, they refer to them as space folds. And so it's a it's it's in that Tesseract style technology where they're basically picking a known bridge point in space that is empty enough that they can create a fold between where they were previously and where they are later and be able to go through that. Um, there are some things that are sort of like they're continuing to try to develop as they go. Um, but in terms of the, like, if they're on a shuttle or something, they're dealing with whatever kinds of forces would be going on with the shuttle, sans anti-gravity, because it's a shuttle. Um, it'd be kind of weird to expect the shuttles in Star Trek to have anti-gravity, but they do. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't I don't go too heavily into the weapons in the earlier books, and I'm not sure how much I want to, because it is one of those investigation and exploration series. Um, there's a lot about the language learning technology and a lot about the scanning technology that they're dealing with. Uh, so one of the characters from the very beginning is wearing a translator um, that is trying to put through the closest approximation of the language in as close to real time as it can. Um, and it's actually not too far ahead of what we're dealing with now with certain programs. Uh, so, so the development of that in the longer term and trying to figure out how to more effectively teach alien languages is something that I get to dive into. And this is one of those, hey, I'm a teacher. Um, and there are a lot of very interesting storylines that I can pull out of that. Um, the long range communication technology um, has been tons of fun to, to just kind of like think about, all right, how would they set up whatever kind of super long range broadcasting from one side to another? And where might it run into pitfalls when dealing with different species that have different assumptions of, uh, you know, visible light and, uh, and audible sound and what other things they would use to communicate like synthetic smells and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, Doc, you're back up next since you stole some of my questions. I don't know what you're talking about. 
So of all the tech in this universe, which one would you want to have on a daily use? I'm still going to cheat and say the ship. I, I, I want a ship. So how would you abuse that? <laughs> I mean, if, if there were no known intelligent life forms out there, then I would probably try to put together a crew to go find them. Um, and if there were, I would want to interact and communicate with them. So you just ditch your publisher and go out and, and explore space. Sounds I mean, like I would probably keep writing about? and try to send back my reports. Wait a minute. I, we know who his publisher is. They'd probably want to join. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I get that. So what would you name your ship if it was just your ship? If it wasn't the one from the book, if you had that ship, but you, you know, like in the class of, but it needed its own name, what are you going to name it? The one you explore on? That's a great question. Um. I think I, I think I would pull out one of the Greek names. I think I would go the Venomis. Um, so uh, Venomis is a Greek term for like strength and fervor. Um, okay. And and it also just it looks really cool when written out. So yeah. <laughs> if it's the that. very That's first, so if it's the very first FTL ship, I'm definitely calling it the Mad Hatter because you'd have to be crazy as a loon to get in here. But yeah, yep. I, that's a good name for a spaceship. If you can pronounce it, which I cannot, but but we'll just move on. You can't even spell it, Jr. I, I wouldn't even spell it close enough that like Word Perfect could correct it, or Google could be like, uh, "We think you mean this." Yep. So, uh, so you know, we've talked about the universe having aliens in it, yeah. but how did you go about creating your un your aliens for this universe? Did it, were they? purpose built uh were you you know taking a note from the kids and being a field biologist and going how would this roach feel if it was like sentient yeah. enough to talk, communicate <laughs> how would you do this uh, so yeah it was more the latter uh, the the species in here a lot of them are are things that came out of other sort of down the rabbit hole analyses of different potential evolutionary tracks um i am one of those people who will watch the you know the series that's in CG about whatever kind of alien planet and, and biomes and like how would they work in various circumstances. And so, yeah. So when there's some idea that pops up in science and I get to, you know, pull out my sketch pad and start doodling. And then I, so I'll, 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 I'll think about it. I'll noodle then I'll doodle and then I'll Google. Um, and I know that sounds ridiculous, but I will say that in a classroom too. And it's, no, actually that, really that sounds like something a teacher um, would say. Yeah, uh, it is a very teacherly thing. I, I I can't totally get away from that. Um, and with this series, I also wanted to play with what are the very different types of, of species and the different ways that I could anticipate some amount of evolution taking place using some of the known structures of species that we have around and producing totally different languages and cultures. And yeah, so it was like, it was just fun. I, I, was, uh, I was kind of on my own playground. Um, just messing around with these ideas and getting to see what would happen with them. Um, yeah. Wonderful. I enjoyed it. Helps if you unmute. Since you mentioned playgrounds and you are a teacher, uh, how family friendly is this? What would you recommend as far as ages for this? Cause we do have some people that listen to this with their kids. Yeah. And if it sounds like something that's up their angle, we do try to figure out like what the recommended age range is so yeah. they can make informed decisions. Yeah. So the, the content of it is actually totally appropriate for a pretty big age range. Like there's not going to be anything in it that's above PG 13. Um, I will tell parents that I work with <laughs> that it's like high peril, low body count. Um, 
and and that seems to help pretty well. Uh, and and I've had, I don't know, I, I've had different kinds of reactions from from students and parents who have read it. That said, the reading level is high enough that if a middle schooler were to approach, it would be like, ah, oh, yes, that is a precocious youth, um, because it's it's not something that's that's easy to read and make sense of, especially with the different very non-human points of view in the story. Um, so it is, it's for point of view characters, first person point of view characters, which is one of those things that that some people hear it and be like, whoa, that's a huge challenge. And and yet at the same time, it ended up being the biggest draw. So the, the people who don't like the series, they do not like having to bounce between alien POVs. For the people who really like the series, it's the biggest draw for them, that they're able to read from totally non-human people. And so would you say this is like screen. freshman in high school or eighth grader? Well, say sorry. Say again. Freshman in high school or eighth grader? Um, I would go high school or above for readership, and the characters are are in that realm of new adult that never quite made its way onto a a, a shelf in Barnes and Noble as a category, um, because the characters are all in that transition between what would be a teenager and adult. So the main human character is eighteen years old and and going from the preliminary training into the official with aliens academy. Okay. So clearly the interview is winding down, but before we wrap this up, was there anything about the signal out of space, the first book in the, this fine cruise series that we didn't ask that you want to tell us before we go? Um, sure. Uh, so signal out of space is available in both print and ebook. It is, and I, I maybe I should cringe while saying this, it is at the moment only on Amazon. Um, so <laughs> it is also not yet an audiobook. Um, that is one of those things that is down the line going to happen, but has not done so yet. Um, so, I have also I've also read a couple of passages out loud and just put those ones on YouTube. So I have posted a few of them. So if you want to hear the intro and see if it sounds like a fit for them, then that is doable as well. And I, I believe y'all have my uh, my YouTube link that you can post. I do. As well. I do. Yeah? Cool. So for for people not in the know, so we're recording this at the um, early May. Uh, 2022. Uh, and because of the the um, Corona, Corona stuff, there's a lot of backlog in some of the audio production houses. And even if the narrators are fast, their post-production crew, they have to listen to every single hour and clean it up. So there is there is some lag on the back end. Yeah. Um, so that's not entirely unexpected given the moment in time. Uh, but this is the kind of thing, these kinds of interviews that people could come back to years later, so they might not understand that. That's right. Um, so uh, Right. Well, you don't have an audiobook yet, so this is just a big dream question. But if you had anybody in your perfect world narrate this book, who's it going to be? Oh, wow. Um, okay, in a perfect world, it would be four different narrators. It would be okay, one for each of the POV characters. Uh, I don't feel like I know enough of the names to be able to tell you who would narrate what. Um, but I, I think that's as ideal as I could go, just to be able to have four POV narrators to, to be able to lend very different voices to it. Um, yeah. See, I think you only need two. Go one on. male, one female. I, I would do Nick Podell and Veronica Gregaire. Gregaire, yeah, she's awesome. Gregaire, because they both can do highly different voices. Excellent. And in without having to bring on in, in additional people, which creates the more juggle things to yeah. juggle. Yeah, and they. <laughs> And they're both absolutely fabulous narrators. And they're they're on my, I'm biased, they're on my auto-buy. I buy almost anything that comes out oh, cool. in speculative fiction that either one of them have narrated. That's what's yeah. 
So, but I would do. There's, I, I, would pick I, I can also. So I can also tell you that a, a lot of people who know me or have heard me read passages from it have asked me if I'm doing the the audiobook. I don't imagine that I will unless my publisher says oh, you're going to do that and we'll have somebody else clean it up in post. Um, so yeah. the the voice acting side of it, I am very comfortable with the trying to work with uh, the tech needed to edit it and make sure that it's cleaned up and like ACX compatible. I'm not, and I would I'd rather leave that in somebody else's more capable hands. I I know somebody who's who can cap is capable of doing that. Autumn uh, Juliet she narrates the Mel Todd's book. She's both done the audio cleanup, but she also she's a yeah. young narrator, but she's very good. Oh, cool. So she's done. She's sometimes done some cleanup for us on the podcast when we've had guests that their Wi-Fi signal was weak enough that the only way to save the the episode was to hire a professional. <laughs> but uh, she, some of those interviews are amazing, so it was worth the it was worth paying. Good, yeah. But so yeah, she did the. Um, she also edited all the stuff for the virtual Dragon Con that I put on YouTube. So there are several ways to do audiobooks. There is the straight one narrator read. There is the ensemble cast, which is what you're describing, where they would do the voices and pass it back and forth. And then yeah. there's a mix of the two, but they also add like background dramatic music, almost like uh, the old uh, radio drama. Yeah, radio style. drama, storytime theater, yeah. Right. So if you had to pick one of those three, you've already said you'd prefer an ensemble, but would you go to the full um, radio drama angle or would you keep it just a straight read? I, I would keep it straight read. And I actually don't even think I would do the ensemble cast and the usual ensemble cast. I, I would want like... You know, the narrator for Lidstrom, I would want to read all the Lidstrom passages, including the Lidstrom's version of the other characters' voices. And for all the Paul <laughs> Newman passages, I want that narrator to read the Paul Newman version of the Lidstrom voice and the Paul Newman version of the Seal voice. Um, because yeah, it, it, is, I, it is very POV-specific. Um, I've listened stuff. to an audiobook that did that, and it, it, it was really good. Yeah. So. That poor narrator, though. <laughs> that That's like... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, you know that would what? be amazing. Some narrators like a challenge. I, you said in an ideal world. I'm I'm not going oh, no, to go out of my way to ask people to do that because I don't want to get blacklisted uh, for having unreasonable <laughs> standards. But in a perfect world, that would happen. So I actually wrote just to see what would happen. I I when I wrote the reservist for Galaxy's Edge, I actually wrote in some really weird names just to see if I could slip them through and then make the narrator have to read them. And I got a call from the publisher when it went to the narration and he goes, "JR, I hate you. That's number 1. And number 2, no, we're shortening their names." Yeah. <laughs> so so I don't know how the narrator would have reacted cuz they caught me, but okay. yeah, I get okay. it. Okay. Robert Ross has done that to Nick Bell. He he made Nick Podell sing a song in a female voice. Awesome. Oh, Three different voices, and then had them harmonize in it. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna have to and listen. That's to always that. fun. Yeah. I have I have self harmonized um, with with the the magic of GarageBand software, um, and that is just so much fun to do. <laughs> All right, so before we wrap this interview up, dear listener, we would like to remind you that your thoughts matter. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. They help the right readers find the right books. So go over on Amazon, leave a review, hop on a Goodreads, leave a review there too. Share it to the Facebooks and the Twitters. And if you can't do all that, start a blog and review it there or do that too. We don't care. Just share your thoughts. Rumor has it that when an author gets a hundredth book review, he gets a unicorn. And I, for one, want to know how a unicorn steak would taste. There we go. Yeah. You're never going to find out. 
I know. I mean, I got my 100th review and they didn't give it to me. They said it would be cruel and unusual to the poor unicorn. I don't know what that's about. No, they got lost in shipping from China. Yeah, that's I'm, probably I'm, pretty, I'm pretty close to the 100 mark. I'm, I'm at like 80 on Signal. So, I mean, that's, All right, that's, people's that's not bad. So, yes, you, you got a goal. Them. When you listen, go read it and review it for him. He needs, he needs his unicorn. Yes. But, Mike, uh, would you please say your full name so I don't butcher it again and then tell the listeners how they can find you? Yeah. Um, I'm Mike Jack Stumbos. Um, Stumbos with the O and the O and absolutely no R's in there. Um, and you can find me at MikeJackStumbos.com. And if you can't spell that, you can look up Signal Out of Space. <laughs> um, on Amazon and find it and everything related to me there. Uh, yeah, I've also got a Facebook page, which is Mike Jack Stumbos. Um, the Twitter, I don't really know why, but it's MJ Stumbos instead of Mike Jack, and maybe I should have done that differently, but oh well. Um, and and as of very recently, I have put together a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash Mike Jack Stumbos, and it has concept art and world stuff and backstory stuff. And uh like song parody lyrics and those kinds of things because that's what I do. And you'll also find that on my YouTube. So yes. Um I, I love that you said please be kind and speak your mind. I mean like I'm hoping that you can do both at the same time. Um <laughs> and, if you, and if you can't and if you can't please be kind, well maybe maybe we'll keep the the speak by the doubt for a moment until until we've got used to please enough. be kind and rewind used to yeah. be on all the different blockbusters when I was a kid. So I just yeah. thought that was a, a funny callback, but you might not be old enough to remember the blockbuster. I, I'm old enough to remember the blockbuster, yeah. So <laughs> the um, you can find us, dear listener, over on the Twitters at twitter.com backslash sf underscore show underscore fantasy underscore show. Again, twitter.com backslash sf underscore fantasy underscore show. Wow, I messed that up the first time. You can email the show at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com, blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Be kind. Doc answers those mostly. So, you know, you don't want to make her mad. She has people that will find you. Um, we have a podcast. Podcast. The podcast has a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen, where you probably find these episodes and where you can interact with our guests. If you say something particularly enlightening or have questions for them, I generally will pester them till they come answer you. And that is facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Our website is anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month you will help keep the lights on uh, or as much as you want the sky's the limit and we can also support the show over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley buymeacoffee.com backslash author jr hanley be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast and i promise i will keep doc saska and nick garber duly caffeinated they will drink until they're I don't know if caffeine goes to your liver, but yeah, until something goes happens. to your liver, Jr. It has to eventually, yeah. Okay, yeah, the, the you know, drink until your liver surrenders doesn't quite work with coffee as it did with booze. We'll work on it, people. I'll work on the bit, but you know, Doc, bring it home before I stumble again. I think too much coffee can still hurt your liver. At least that's what my doctor told me. Um, so he could have been fibbing about my ca- in order to get me to reduce the caffeine. But thank you for joining us next uh, on behalf of JR, Nick Garber. I'm Seska. This was the Blasters of Names podcast. We'll be back next week. Same time, same place, probably, if we can find the place. Indulging our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, all things that go boom. And, of course, torturing JR, because that's the best.